Welcome to the External Medicine Podcast. My name is Daniel Belkin, and I'm here with my co-host and brother, Mitch Belkin. We're both medical students interested in non-traditional ideas and innovation. This podcast is our attempt to explore topics currently on the outskirts of medicine, topics not widely accepted by the mainstream, but that we believe merit a closer look. This podcast is for educational and entertainment purposes only. We do not endorse any healthcare providers or treatments. Our views do not represent the views of any official organization or institution. If you'd like to support us, follow us on Twitter at exmedpod and sign up for our newsletter at external medicine Pod podcast.com forward slash subscribe. Today, we are interviewing Professor Michael Levin. Professor Levin is a biologist at Tufts University, where he investigates informational storage and processing in biological systems. He received a dual bachelor's in computer science and biology at Tufts. He then received his PhD in genetics from Harvard, where he characterized the molecular genetic mechanisms of embryologic left-right asymmetry. This finding is on nature's list of 100 milestones of developmental biology of the century. Currently, he is the director of the Tufts Center for Regenerative and Developmental Biology and the co-editor-in-chief of the journal Bioelectricity. He also does a lot of other stuff, and he has published more than 350 papers. Professor Levin is the co-discoverer of xenobots, which are living robots made from frog skin cells that can actually sense their own environment. His research interests include bioelectricity, limb regeneration, regenerative medicine, collective intelligence, embryogenesis, cancer, and learning plasticity, all examples of how cellular networks process information. In this interview, we talk about most of these topics and If any of these sound unfamiliar, do not worry. Professor Levin is a phenomenal explainer and makes all of these topics not only exciting, but extremely accessible. We hope you enjoy this conversation as much as we did. And now we bring you Professor Michael Levin. We are here with Dr. Michael Levin. Mike, thank you so much for joining us on the External Medicine Podcast. Thank you so much. Very happy to be here. Before we get started, do you have any financial disclosures? Yeah, there's two uh, that I need to disclose. Um, I'm a co-founder in two companies, one with uh, David Kaplan in a company called Morphaceuticals, and one with uh, Josh Bongard in a company called Fauna Systems. We may ask you about those companies later. It seems like you're doing some really interesting stuff with them. Sure. But just to sort of kick off the interview, Can you tell us a little bit about your background and how you got interested in your current research? Yeah, uh, my original uh, training was in computer science. Um, I was interested from a very early age in the interplay between uh, mind and body. And so, you know, watching watching insects, uh, watching various animals, thinking about computer technology, and just thinking about what it means for physical objects to have a mind, to have preferences, to have memories, to have behavior, um, have an inner perspective, and so on. And so I uh, started out uh, doing computer science uh, with the idea that I would work in artificial intelligence, and then uh, sort of halfway through that became very clear that um, we have some really fundamental knowledge gaps that weren't going to be addressed just from the computer side. And so I got a second undergrad degree in biology. And then after that, um, a PhD in uh, in genetics. And then I did a postdoc. 
And yeah, ever since then, um, I've been running uh, running a lab that's sort of in the, at the intersection of, of biology, computer science, and cognitive science. So it's very interesting. So you were led into biology basically by your interest in computer science. And a lot of your work seems to be at the intersection of those two fields. How do you think about the intersection between the two of them? I, I think that... Uh, is the first thing we need to do is is understand that um, computer science is not, and I forget whose quote this is, but but somebody said that computer science is not about computers any more than astronomy is about telescopes, right? It's the computer science. Once we understand that computer science is not the science of the computer that you and I are using on a daily basis, it becomes much less shocking to think that uh, computation and, and the deep lessons of computer science are important to understand biology. So in, in many ways, you can think about biology as a branch of computer science. Biology is uh, the study of a particular kind of system, which is, among other things, is a computational system. And I think there are, there are important lessons from uh, computer science around the, the notions of software, the notions of reprogrammability, and, and, and so on, that are really important for progress in biology. But, but, but it's, you know, it's certainly not the claim, which, which gets, gets people very activated when, when people say that, oh, you know, the brain is a computer or the cell is a computer. Um, in some ways, they are, but but not the claim is not that they're similar to the computers that you and I are familiar with um, every day. But but there are deep deep lessons in computer science that we can use. You've spoken about software versus hardware and how those concepts can be used to explain things in biology. Can you can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, um, <clears throat> the distinction between. Uh, you know, com- computer science. One, one, one nice and useful um, thing you get in computer science is this idea of substrate independence, which just basically means that um, it's very useful to talk about the computations or the information processing that something is doing separately from what it's made of, and that in fact you can swap out the physical substrate, the material of which something is made, for a completely different thing. And as long as the uh, certain certain functional um, relationships hold, you still get the same computation. So you know, I think Dan Dennett is the one who says, you know, you could you can you can have the same computer built out of beer cans and string, and it might be might be very large, it might be very slow, but it would still do the same computations as a computer made out of silicon and 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 so on. And so, what what's useful in biology is if we think about, for example, um, a lot of times people will say something like. Well, the genome is the software of the cell, and I actually think, in 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 its particulars, that's actually wrong. I think I think the what what the genome does is describes the precise uh, micro level hardware that every cell gets to have. So so what's so if you actually look at genomes, you don't see anything directly as far as the organism size, shape. In fact, you couldn't even by looking at the genome, you couldn't even tell what the organism would look like. You know, you could cheat and compare it to other genomes that you already know what they are. But but what you see, you don't see any of the things you're actually interested in. What you see is the micro level hardware. And then you have the very important question of saying, okay, once we build this hardware and we have these cells that all express these proteins, uh, including electrical, you know, bioelectric components and biomechanical components and 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 uh, biochemical and so on. What is it going to do? What are these things going to do? And many of the phenomena in biology uh, have have to do with decision making by collectives, so groups of cells getting together and deciding what they're going to build and so on. And the control of all of these outcomes, and we can talk. I mean, I can give you some examples of some really amazing biology. Uh, 
where where you realize that uh, what we really need to understand is the software that this system is able to implement, the decisions it makes, the things that it measures to make those decisions, the memories that it holds, the goals that it tries to pursue. All of these are, 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 are software level um, items. And the important thing about software, which which we you know we can talk about as as the what I think is the future of regenerative medicine, is that it allows you to to reprogram the system without swapping out the hardware. So as I say to my students, when when you're on your computer and you want to change from Photoshop to Microsoft Excel, you don't get out your soldering iron and start rewiring, right? And, and everybody kind of laughs at that, but but because we assume we, because it's so obvious at this point that of course you don't. Now why don't you? In the fifties, that's how you would program, right? In the fifties, you would literally, and I have this 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 picture that I show in my talks where um, someone she's she's sitting there and she's she's programming the computer literally by pulling wires and and physically rewiring it. Now think about that. That's where all of modern molecular medicine is. Everything that people are excited about, genome editing, uh, uh, re rewiring um, transcriptional networks, single molecule approaches, proteomics, all of this stuff is, is aimed directly at the hardware. And what computer science has shown us over the last decades is the incredible power of moving beyond the hardware and saying, okay, here's our hardware, but now how reprogrammable is it? What are the innate subroutines that it has? What are the capacities that it has? And how can we take advantage of it by giving it experiences or stimuli. So when you hit a keyboard, you're giving, you're giving the thing uh, a transient, brief transient experiences. You're not trying to re rewire the hardware. And so my claim would be that in uh, biomedicine, we are where, at, at best, where computer science was in the 50s. In, in fact, probably not even that far, where we are still incredibly focused on the hardware. Just think about that. You know, somebody, somebody gives you this amazing computer and you spend your whole, you, you spend all your time zoomed in on the silicon and the, and the copper and, and the other things that are in there. I mean, it's nice to, to, to understand your parts and to know what it's made of. But but my God, all of the stuff that you're missing out just by 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 you know by by exclusively paying attention to that one hardware level. So uh, this is this is what I think the big opportunity is in biology and medicine is is to really understand the software of the machines that are encoded by the genome. So there's a lot a lot that you brought up in there, and and I think that a good place to start is with bioelectricity. Mm -hmm. In biology class, we're talking about. DNA, RNA, proteins, and you've described that as being the hardware of the cell. What is this software, bioelectricity, and how exactly does the bioelectricity story relate to the DNA, RNA, protein story? Yeah, um, so I, I'll, I'll tell you where I think it relates, and then we'll sort of backtrack and see how see how we got there. So, long story short, I think that uh, bioelectric dynamics in all tissue, not just neurons and muscle, but all tissue, um, bioelectric dynamics are the cognitive medium in which the collective intelligence of cells uh, solves problems in anatomical space. So let me, let me unpack that a little bit. Uh, cell groups work together to make decisions about what to build and when to stop, right? And collectives of cells have goals like build an arm, build an eye, make sure that they're the right size and shape and all of that. And any collective intelligence uh, has to have a medium by which the pieces coordinate together to give rise to this kind of uh, purposeful behavior. Now, um, we are, if, if you want to think about one very uh, sort of commonplace example of that, and that's the brain. We all think of ourselves, at least most of us, think of ourselves as unified sort of um, uh, uh, 
kind of centralized intelligences, right? We certainly feel like, certainly feels like, like, you, you know, you're one creature, but actually all intelligences are collective intelligences. We're bags of cells, right? There is no intelligence that is this kind of like indivisible single molecule that cannot be cut into pieces. All intelligences is made of parts. And so in neuroscience, it's pretty accepted that when you pull together a bunch of cells, they happen to be neurons, but they're really just cells. You pull together a bunch of cells, you, you, you put them in a particular configuration, and out comes this, uh, this, this emergent being that has its own independent memories, goals, preferences, and so on, that are not those of any of the individual pieces, right? There's this incredible scaling of cognition from, from competent small subunits into this novel thing. So uh, that, that magic, that, that, that ability to, to join multiple uh, small subsystems into a novel uh, uh, system with, with some kind of cognition did not arise sort of from scratch when brains showed up, uh, this is this is an extremely ancient process. Evolution figured this out back around the time of bacterial biofilms. And the medium that it that it discovered to do this, which is a very convenient medium, is bioelectricity. So all of the things that you're used to neurons doing, so so being electrically active, uh, working in a network, getting uh, inputs from other cells, uh, solving problems, having computation and, and scaling up cognition, all of these things, every cell in your body does this. In fact, we've had, we've had discussions with, you know, I've been at meetings um, on basal cognition or, or, or neuroscience where somebody says something about neurons and, and, uh, and I'll ask, what's a neuron? And they say, well, come on, we know what a neural is. And I said, no, really, what's a neuron? And so they'll, they'll put four or five um, criteria for what is a neuron on the board. And, and I'll say, yeah, but every, every cell in the body does this. And the thing is that um, it makes perfect sense if you ask yourself, well, where did neurons come from? And neurons evolved from electrically active ancient cells that were solving, uh, that, that were combining in networks to solve problems long before brains showed up. Now, what kind of problems were they solving? Before brains and muscles showed up, they were solving problems in anatomical morphous space. Anatomical morphous space is simply the space of all possible configurations of your body. So, you know, if you're, if you're a, if you're a seashell, um, you only have two dimensions to that morphous space, you know, the angle and the rise, and you can using those, those two numbers, you can describe any possible shell, right? So that's the, you know, the little long pointy ones, the big flat ones and so on. That's, that's the morphous space. It might be the distance between your, your eyes. And then the, the, the shape of the, 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 the head and the, you know, if you're a bird, the length of your beak and all this stuff. So Cells were getting together to, as, as a collective to make decisions about what they're going to build, basically traverse that morphous space. And they were using electricity to do that. Bacteria used it first to solve metabolic problems, then cells used it to solve morphogenetic problems. And eventually, when brains and muscles showed up, they were able to use those same tricks in three-dimensional space to solve um, behavioral problems by running around and, and chasing, you know, chasing food and so on. So, um, so bioelectricity is everything you you've learned in neuroscience with two exceptions, uh, non-neural cells. So every cell in the body does it and it's a lot slower. So instead of milliseconds, we're talking about hours or, um, or, you know, minutes or hours and everything else is the same. So it's produced electrical signals are produced by ion channels. So these little proteins in the cell surface that create on voltage differences, these voltage differences are propagated to their neighbors via electrical synapses known as gap junctions uh, neurotransmitter molecules go back and forth um, under the, the, these electrical um, uh, uh, dynamics. All of this stuff exists in, in all of your cells, not just, not just your neural cells. And it underlies the ability of cells to get together in networks 
to store memories, make decisions, and pursue goals. Fascinating. So can you talk a little bit about some of the experiments you've done to explore bioelectricity and how it works? And then if you could also describe how you actually manipulate bioelectricity within different organisms and cell collections. Sure. So, so okay. So, so the first thing to be said here is that uh, I, I want to be clear that um, I, I was not the first person to uh, realize that bioelectrics are important. Okay. So this is this is this is critical. That 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 all of this is built on the work of. Uh, some really incredible pioneers in this process. Some, some of the first experiments in the field were done in in 1903. Um, there were some re- there was there were a couple of uh, a couple of guys who worked on this in the 30s and 40s that were um, just incredibly prescient in being able using nothing more than the first good voltmeter that existed at the time to really um, discover quite a bit about this. And then there was a lot of work in the um, 70s and 80s on this, and even even now um, there's some other labs. What for 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 me. The big, uh, I, I think, what we do different is to really treat bioelectricity not as just another piece of physics that you need to keep track of, like biomechanics and, and diffusion and everything else, but it really is the medium in which the the cognition of that collective intelligence is happening. So it's not just um, it's not just more physics. It's actually by 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 looking at the interpretation of these electrical states, you are really looking at. Uh, the decision making, the memory, the logic. This is this is the software. This is this is a software running pretty much exactly how neuroscientists do neural decoding in the brain. And you know we kind of understand that the electrical activity in in the brain and in our computer devices underlies all the information that's being processed here. Right. So the tool. So so what I what I did was back in um, around uh, around the year two thousand is to um, create uh, and then with my lab develop a number of reagents that were that 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 could be used to read and write these electrical signals at the molecular level so what i mean by that so so here's here's how we do it um in the olden days you would have had to take an electrode like an electro electrophysiology electrode poke a cell and you would see the voltage but then of course the cell is going to die because you just poked it and and you would have to do one cell at a time so what we developed and this is uh this is myself and my colleague danny adams made use of voltage sensitive fluorescent dyes which are molecules that you can bathe your entire embryo in or your entire tissue and just collect fluorescence and just look and you will have a report of what all the voltages are so anything you can see you will immediately uh, see the voltage map so you can actually read out so think of it as a scan as a way of reading the mind of this collect of this cellular collective you're seeing all the electric and you can make videos and so we have lots of cool videos of of, of these electrical um, signals changing over over time so that's the reading portion then uh, then we developed uh, the a, a way of writing information into the system by now we don't use this is important we don't use any applied fields okay so there's no electrodes being applied there's no um, uh, electromagnetics there's no magnetic component there are no waves all this is is, uh, turning on and off the natural um, mechanisms by which cells communicate electrically, meaning the ion channels and the gap junctions. So we 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 steal all the techniques from from neuroscience. We use optogenetics. We mutate ion channels. We use drugs, lots of pharmacology to open and close these channels. the The fact that we can steal all these um, techniques is actually really really cool because what it's telling you is that the technology doesn't distinguish between neural and non neural cells. 
you use exactly the same procedures with any cell in your body. And that tells you that our distinction between, oh, these are neurons and these are not, it's, it's completely artificial, right? It's, it's a, it's a, um, uh, a consequence of, of just the history of the field and how, you know, how, how it developed, but, but the techniques, the techniques can't tell the difference. So we use, um, the computational modeling, a lot of the concepts and, and just the physical techniques like optogenetics to read and write electrical states into, uh, into living tissue. And so some of these, so, so I can just run through for you some of the, some of the experiments that you can do. Um, here's just a few, uh, a few examples. One, uh, one thing that you can do is you can use the bioelectric, uh, reporter dyes to look at, let's say uh, craniofacial development in an early um, embryo. And the, we, we did this in the frog and you can actually see the electrical pattern that tells the cells in the face where the eye is going to go. Okay, you can you can see that. So now you might do an interesting experiment. You can you can take an you can take an ion channel RNA, and you can misexpress it in a different place. Let's say on the gut of the of the animal, the cells that are fated to become intestine, and uh, and you can try to establish that same bioelectrical pattern that in the context of the face would have said build an eye here. And the reason we know that it's instructive and that and that we know that that's what it says is because when you reproduce that electrical state somewhere else guess what those cells do? They'll build an eye. And so we've made tadpoles that have eyes that are made out of cells that were originally going to be gut. You can put these eyes on the tail. You can put them on the gut. You can put them anywhere you like because the electrical pattern is what the cells are using to determine what they're going to build. It's a subroutine call. If this is another reason why I, I like these computer analogies, because anybody that's programmed knows that once you've written a piece of code, you don't have to keep rewriting it. You just, you just give it a name. And then you give it a trigger. And then if you want to use it again somewhere else, you just trigger it again. And so that whole cascade, all the genes you have to turn on to make an eye, all the things that shape the lens and everything else is all triggered by an electrical state that says build an eye here. And we can, we can put that electrical state anywhere we like and, and, and make these ectopic eyes. Now, this is, this is uh, a, a, a sort of a really advantageous thing for regenerative medicine because it's because the modularity means that we don't have to know everything there is to know about making an eye. We're not micromanaging the process. We don't know how to make an eye. It's got so many different cell types arranged in a particular way. Who, you know, we, we have no ability to build an eye from scratch. But once you know that there's a trigger that will do it, that means that for regenerative medicine, we might discover these triggers and we can use them to get the body to uh, build and repair organs long before we could actually ever micromanage it. And who wants to micromanage, right? If you can, if you can tell the body what to do, that's much better. You know, high-level interventions are always um, more more efficient. So you can make organs. We can make we can make eyes. Um, other things you can do is uh, you can shift large-scale decisions like uh, whether to scar or whether to regenerate. So in the tadpole tail and the frog leg, we've shown that by normally at stages where it would normally just scar over, and that would be that. We can we can induce with with ion channel drugs. We can induce specific states that say no rebuild the structure. So they will rebuild their tails, you know, including spinal cord. They rebuild their leg their legs. You can do uh, you can do another thing, which is that in planaria. So planaria, this is a super interesting model system. These flatworms, they normally have a head and a tail. And the cool thing about planaria is that you can cut them into pieces. And every piece knows exactly what a correct planarian looks like, and they regenerate. Now you have a bunch of little worms. The record is like 275 pieces or something. It's amazing. So what we did was we looked at, at um, we looked at this process, and uh, we asked, how does it know how many heads it's each? How does each piece know how many heads it's supposed to have? And we noticed that there's a bioelectrical pattern that dictates where the head is supposed to go. 
And we said, well, what happens if we alter that? So if you alter it and on the back end, you sort of reinforce a head-like pattern, then it makes two heads. And the, the amazing thing we found is that once you make these two-headed animals, so they're like a pull-me-push-you kind of thing, they have, you know, they have heads at both, both ends, they're com you know, completely viable, they're, they're fine, they're very you know, adorable and everything. Um, and uh, the amazing thing is if you cut those guys again and again and again in plain water, no more manipulations of any kind, they continue to be two-headed. And so, so this is also really important. And this goes back to our, our, our point about um, hardware and software. Their hardware is unchanged in the sense that we didn't edit the genome. The genome is completely wild type. If you were to sequence that genome, you wouldn't see anything wrong. You would see a perfectly normal planarian genome. But the answer to the question of how many heads a planarian is supposed to build is encoded not in the genome. It's encoded in the electrical state of that circuit. Now, the genome gives you the parts to make an electrical circuit that by default will always say one head. It's kind of like if I gave you the parts, um, the parts list to a calculator and you made your calculator, you turn on the juice and it says zero. That's what it always says when you turn it on. But that's not the only thing it can do. That's what it does by default, right? The fact that it's a reprogrammable calculator means that after that, you can actually now give it new electrical states with stimuli, with experience as much as we did with the worm and cause it to do something else. And it has a memory. So this electrical pattern has a memory. Once you've shifted it to the two head stage, that, that's, what, um, that's the information that all the cells are using to try to remember the collective, not the individual cells. The collective uses that electrical state to remember what a correct planarian is supposed to look like. And that's the memory they need to have when they're injured, because that's how they know to regenerate. And that's how they know when to stop. So, um, <clears throat> so that's another one of my favorite examples. Um, another example, uh, well, we can talk about one from, from cancer, is that electrical, electrical networks are the things that allow individual cells to inflate their goals. Now, um, bear with me for a moment because biologists uh, often don't like talk of goals because it, sound, it sounds a little magical, but it's really not. When I say goal, I don't mean um, sort of uh, uh, any kind of uh, um, conscious or metacognition notion of, of knowing what your goal is. I just mean from a cybernetic perspective, right? Your thermostat has, has goals because it expends energy to keep things within a homeostatic range, right? That, that's, what, that's what I mean. So, so no, no, no magic. Um, and what happens is in individual cells have cell level goals. You know, the, somebody said um, the dream of every cell is to become two cells, right? So cells have metabolic needs. They have, um, they, you know, they like to, uh, you know, they like to proliferate and so on. But in a, in a, in a multicellular body, that won't do. What you need to do is you need to scale up the, the collective so that they have the goal of interesting things like build an arm, build a liver, build a heart. And so what enables in part, there's other things, but, but, but one thing that enables that to happen is being part of an electrical network that scales the memory that you have for what you're supposed to be doing. And it links you tightly functionally to your neighbors so that all of you can maintain a much larger goal. And, and there's, there's other work um, where, where I kind of talk about the size of your goals as the definition of what a self is at all scales, you know, from, from, from molecules on up. So, so what happens, so, so the example in cancer is this, um, what happens when cells convert to, from normal cells to cancer cells is that first thing they do is they disconnect from electrically from their neighbors. And so once you've disconnected from your neighbors, they just sort of roll back to their unicellular lifestyle. As far as they're concerned, the rest of the animal is just external environment. 
And then what do you do when, in a, when you're an amoeba in an external environment? What do you do? Well, you go where life is good, you reproduce as much as you can, and, and that's metastasis. So, so what we've shown is that you can electrically, with no genetic damage, no carcinogens, no oncogenes, you can, you can for example, induce uh, metastatic melanoma in a genetically perfectly normal tadpole with a, where, where no one would have been able to um, tell anything is wrong by sequence. But better yet, you can do the opposite, and you can take a tadpole in which we've expressed a nasty human oncogene, like a KRAS mutation and they normally would have a tumor, you can force those cells to have the appropriate electrical state with their neighbors, and then there's no tumor. The, 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 the incidence is, is, is greatly reduced because those cells, even though, uh, even though the hardware is, uh, is, is, uh, is, is a little bit wonky, but you, you force them to be in the right electrical state, and then they're just, they just form normal, normal tissues. So that level of control, so all of these examples, what, what all these examples have in common is a couple of interesting things. One is this amazing sort of top-down um, modular control where we're not telling every cell what genes to turn on. We're not telling every cell what kind of cell to be, you know, but what bioelectric specifies large-scale properties, like put an eye here, there's got to be two of them, they got to be anterior to the brain, blah, 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 like these kinds of things. Uh, the other thing about it is that this is really software level information, because in all of these cases, if you were to just track the hardware, let's say uh, scan the genome or even the proteome, you wouldn't see, you, you would be completely misled about what the, what the outcome is, right? That's not where the information really is. So that's, what, that's why I like these particular examples. So just in that example of in the endoderm tissue of a developing frog, you can take endoderm, which is bound to become gut, and using bioelectric signals, you can actually cause it to form an eye. So I kind of have two questions with this. First off, is this a functional eye? And secondly, how exactly are you manipulating the endodermal tissues? Are you just applying like ion channel inhibitors or to specific portions of it in a particular pattern, or like, what are you physically doing to the endodermal tissue? Um, you can, you can do a couple of, you can do a couple of different things. Uh, you can, what, what we did in that study. Now this was, this was a long time ago. This was like 2010 now. Um, so what we did at the time was simply to inject RNA, micro inject RNA encoding some specific ion channels because we knew that these particular ion channels would set the voltage to the right eye specific pattern. Nowadays, you could probably do it with optogenetics, you know, putting, expressing like channel rhodopsin and putting a light mask down, things like that. Um, sorry, what was the first part of the question? I forgot now. First part was, is this a functional eye? Oh, oh yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. And, we, and, and that's, you know, that's one of the kind of more generic things we found that doesn't necessarily have anything to do with bioelectricity is that biology is... In, there's incredible plasticity. So, so when you put an eye, and, and there's other ways you can you can transplant it. You can you can put, put there's different ways you can do this. When you um, transplant an eye to the tail of a tadpole and and remove the primary eye, so their only eye is on their tail, they can see perfectly well. And the reason we know is because we've built um, a machine that trains them on visual tasks, so they get rewards and punishments for doing very chasing lights around and doing various things, and uh, they can see perfectly well. So I mean, think think about the the incredible plasticity of this. This this animal evolved for millions of years with to have to have visual inputs with very specific parts of the of the head, and now you're born and you've got this weird itchy patch of tissue on your tail, and how do you even know that's visual data? But but and those eyes, by the way, those eyes don't connect to the brain; they connect to the spinal cord. So the brain has no trouble picking up that data out of all the stuff that's going on on the in the spinal cord 
and saying, ah, yes, that's, you know, that's visual data. We can use this with our behavioral programs and, and off they go. And they can, they can perform uh, really, really well on visual tasks. So, so that plasticity is amazing and it has massive implications for evolution, right? Because I call this, uh, there are many that we could talk about this if you want, but I'll just give you the one, the one example. This is, um, this is an example of, of this kind of multi-scale competency because what's happening here is that those cells finding themselves in the tail next to a bunch of muscle instead of in the head where they're supposed to be, they still know what they're supposed to do. They know, they make an, they, they know to make an eye and that eye makes an optic nerve and that optic nerve knows what to do. It's going to come out and it's going to try to attach to the closest bundle of nerves that it can, which happens to be the spinal cord. And, uh, and, so, and so because you can rely on, you think about evolution, if, if every time you made a tiny tweak, I mean, most mutations, if you've engineered or written any code, you know that if you just make random changes, do things usually get better? They don't, right? They, may get, they get worse most of the time. So when, when I first heard about the theory of evolution, I said, this is, this is, this, this is ridiculous. There's no way this is ever going to work. Like We all know what happens when you make random tweaks to things. But this, is, but this is really one of the things that makes it work is that when you make a tiny, when you make a change, a random change, let's say this change, uh, put now put your eyes way back on your tail. You don't just all fall apart and your fitness is zero because you die because you can't see. And no, in fact, those pieces still give you some function. And if that mutation happens to have other positive effects, now you're free to explore what those are. Maybe maybe something else is really useful there, right? And so that 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 modularity and that um, competency really smooths out the evolutionary landscape. I want to talk a little bit about cancer. So in, in those experiments you described with melanoma and tadpoles, you're able to, uh, or frogs, I forget what, what organism it was, but you're able to detect the cancer before it's spread by noting how, it, how a cell will separate from its neighbors. And then you're also able, able to prevent it from spreading. Is that correct? That's correct. You can, you can see using the dye, you can watch the cell uh, depolarize, which is kind of the first step um, for most cells when they go when they transform, they they depolarize. Uh, yeah, you can you can watch it non-invasively with these with the dyes, and um, if and and if you've got the ability to, to to force it to hyperpolarize, at least in some cases that we've tried. Obviously, we haven't tried every kind of cancer. You know, there may be things that are, that, that that's not going to work for. Uh, then yeah, then then you can get it to to remain uh, tied to its uh, very large scale goal structure. And so in theory, if you bathed a cancer in a human in whatever reagents you're using to see that the cancer is depolarizing, you could look into look at someone's, let's say their liver and say, oh, these areas have depolarized potential cancer there. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, so certainly um, a well-developed uh, bioelectrical signature using these dyes, using voltage-sensitive fluorescent dyes is a, uh, a path to uh, non-invasive detection, right? For, for, for sure. So, so for sure, for skin, for oral mucosa, and then during surgery, like, like tumor margins and things like this. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, and we and others are, are, are working on that as a, as a diagnostic uh, tool. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about an anatomic compiler, what that is and how practical you think the creation of that type of device in the future would be? Yeah, the anatomical compiler is a um, it's a little bit of a of a thought experiment. I mean, I think I think it it's it's designed to you know I, I like to uh, in in all of our projects I like to uh, sort of think of the best case scenario, right? The most successful case scenario 
how do you know when you've succeeded? What's the end game for any particular um, undertaking? So for me, if you think about what the field of regenerative medicine, um, synthetic biology, all of these things, when when can we say that we're done and we can sort of go home? And I think the one way to envision that scenario is you sit down in front of a piece of software and you draw the animal or plant that you want. It can be anything you like. It can be, you know, whatever structure I want. I want a three-headed worm with, uh, you know, with, with wings and I don't know, whatever. You could just draw whatever you like. And if we, if we knew what we were doing, what the software would be able to do is go from your description of the anatomy to a set of stimuli that would have to be given to cells to get them to build exactly that. Now, this is completely different to what we do now, because now we try to specify, you, you, you have to think, if somebody says to you, design a new creature what you start thinking about is okay well, you know pathways um, uh, um morphogens diffusible gradients uh, genes uh, i've got i've got to get all the micro level components in place and and it's really but 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 of course you don't actually care about any of that what you care about is the anatomy right and the and the behavior and the function so why is it that we can't go backwards why why can't we uh describe the way we do when you're making um automobile parts and things like this with CAD, you know, you just describe what you want and the system, the system will, will know exactly what stimuli to give the material to get that to happen. And I think, I think it's a really powerful um, tool for our intuition, for thinking about what we want and as opposed to what we have now. And it's also very, it's also properly humbling uh, to think about how far we away we are from that because it, it, it trying to think about how you would do this really points out all the knowledge gaps. And I think we have some profound knowledge gaps. It's, it's um, when I, when I give, when I give talks, um, I often focus the first half of the, the, the half of the whole talk on what it is that we don't know, because people often will graduate from, from, um, you know, with a degree in biology or, or, or take courses, or whatever. And you get this from the textbook, you get this, this really feel good sort of a moment where you say, Ah, oh, looks like we got things pretty much under control. I mean, look at all this stuff. There's a, you know, there's some, there's genes for this and that, and we we can do all this. is This is great. And what you don't see from any of that are all the uh, incredibly um, profound gaps in our knowledge of things that we don't, we can't even begin to understand how how any of this stuff would work. And so, um, and so I think I think that's the thing about the anatomical compiler. It's not that I think we're going to finish this in my lifetime. I, I don't I don't think. Um, but I think that it is it is what we should aspire to. We should we should aspire to that kind of engineering level understanding that when you know what you want, you have a procedure for figuring out what stimuli will make the cells do it. That's that's what we're aiming for. And we only you know at the moment we only have a very few minor examples of being good at that. We're really not good at this at all. What are some of those major knowledge gaps that you talk about at the beginning of your talks? The there's there's a few. Um, you know, one is 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 the relationship between the the genome and the anatomy. I mean, we've already talked about this a little bit. It's it's the idea that uh, which which sounds kind of obvious in the sense that I mean, developmental biologists know full well that 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 there's this incredibly complex layer between the genome and the anatomy. But a lot of times when people talk about evolution, they talk about, you know, there's a gene for this and a gene for that. And of course, there really isn't. What there is, is, is there's the hardware that's designed by, uh, determined by the genome. 
and then and then there are the outcomes that that we care about and we can see from some of the examples that I just that I just told you that that relationship is not is really not simple at all there's all this there's this incredible layer of physiology which has memory and it's reprogrammable and it does probably does a lot of other things we can't even begin to guess that's sitting in that in that layer um part of so so that's one area another area is the fact that <clears throat> we don't even have a good formalism for starting to understand the, uh, understand how it works. I'll give you a simple example. And I mean, we, we've been trying and other people have been trying, but it's really going to, I think this is, and this is a controversial claim, but I, I think it's going to come down to taking a bunch of concepts from, from um, cognitive science and, and behavioral neuroscience to do this. But just imagine um, deer antlers, okay? And so there's this branch structure made of, made of um, bone and, and vasculature and innervation and skin. And in certain kinds of deer, not, not every species, but certain kinds of deer, if you come along and you, you take a knife and you sort of um, etch into the bone at one place along the, along the branch structure, there'll be a little callus, the bone will heal. And then, and then the whole thing falls off, right? The whole, the whole antler is, is shed. Next year, they regrow a new set of antlers. And at the position where you damaged it last year, there's going to be an ectopic tine, an ectopic branch point. And this and, and and this goes on for for five or six years, and then eventually it goes away. Now, think about what this means. The cells at the base of the scalp have to know where the damage was. They have to store this information for months. They have to instruct new cells that are growing a piece of bone. That oh, by the way, after you go three inches this way, you got to take a little a little detour to the left, right? How th think about think about um, what, what's what's our what's our favorite tool for for quote unquote, understanding these kind of mechanisms. It's the molecular pathway, right? F figure seven in every cell paper is here's the molecular pathway. And it's a bunch of arrow diagrams of genes turning each other off. Okay. Think about what kind of arrow diagram you could build for this process. It's got nothing to do with, with, with determining, you know, cell types in terms of stem cell biology. It's not that at all. It's figuring out how cells store a three-dimensional map of damage from months ago and then instruct at a distance other cells to undergo a new morphogenetic uh, event. What, 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 what um, you know, conceptual apparatus do we even have for beginning to, 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 to flesh out the mechanisms of this? So that kind of stuff, the, 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 things, that, the things that I've told you about, um, you know, about the, the planaria, um, <clears throat> there's, another, there's another deep knowledge gap, which, which has to do with, with evolution. The traditional way of thinking about evolution is that what the evolutionary process does is solves problems. It identifies a solution that is well adapted to a specific environment. So let's say if you look at the frog genome, you might say that, okay, what the frog genome has uh, been sculpted to do over the years is to be the best frog you can be and to be successful in the typical froggy environment, right? But the typical the typical froggy environment being with the cars where it has to get across the street. <laughs> of course, yeah, it has to jump and you know this is a joystick. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, and so uh, what we've shown over the last few years is that if you take if you take frog skin cells, fro frog embryo skin cells, and you liberate them from the rest of the embryo, now what normally happens apparently is that the rest of the cells are telling these skin cells to have a really boring two-dimensional life. They're going to be a surface on the outer side of this, um, the outer side of this animal. They're going to keep out the bacteria and that's, that's that. Well, guess what? It turns out that if you liberate them from that uh, instructive environment, 
you don't give them anything new, no new, no transgenes, no, no um, nanomaterials, nothing, just those same cells, but you take something away. You take away those restrictive in, uh, interactions. In a novel uh, environment, they will self-assemble into something we call a xenobot. It becomes a uh, self-motile little proto-organism that moves around. It has novel, it has a novel shape, it has novel behaviors, it has novel functions. Uh, completely different than than uh, what what the what the tadpole was doing, and all of that is 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 figured out in forty eight hours without any history of selection behind it. There's never been pressure to be a great xenobot. They've never existed. So for any other any other um, animal on Earth or or plant, if you ask about its qualities, why does it have a certain anatomy? Why does it have a certain coloration behavior? The answer is, is, is because, well, for millions of years, the ancestors were selected to do this and that. Okay, there's never been selection to be a great xenobot. Where does this come from? Why is it that the process of evolution in making the frog genome didn't just learn about how to make great frogs, it actually learned something much more general, how to make a little machine that in different configurations solves different problems in different ways and makes, a, in, in fact, in the latest paper, we show that um, when you take these, when you make these xenobots and you've made it impossible for them to reproduce in the way that normally frogs reproduce, they find another way to replicate themselves called kinematic self-replication, where um, kind of like von Neumann's dream, they sort of run around and collect cells and, and package them into little copies of themselves, which then become the next generation of xenobots. They figure out all this, which no other species, to my knowledge, does this. They figure this all this out in 48 hours with no history of selection behind it. So that's another deep um, kind of uh, deep, deep knowledge gap about what is evolution actually learning in 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 creating these little these 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 machines that solve problems, um, not just directly, um, you know, not not just directly shaping them for specific environments that you've seen before. So before we talk a little bit more in detail about xenobots, I just wanted to ask a quick question about actual like storage of this information, because we've been talking a lot about bioelectricity. First, are there any other methods of storage of information besides bioelectricity that you're aware of? And in the particular case of the antler um, cells somewhere by the head storing information that's far off away on the branching of the antlers. Do you have any of sense of how that information would potentially be encoded and kept, or is that still a mystery to you? Right. Um, for sure, uh, there are other ways, you know, bioelectricity is not the only game in town. I, I think it's special and in, in interesting in many ways, but, but there are certainly biomechanics uh, and biomechanical um, ways to process information. There's biochemical gradients. There are gene regulatory networks. There's, there's all kinds of other, other stuff that's also important. In the case of the antler, I have absolutely no idea what's going on with the antler. I mean, the representation and the storage of that map information is of course the key, but I think that it's, it's you know, from the perspective of, so one interesting thing about this field is that um, uh, the, 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 the silos are really interesting in it, where, it, the, the, you know, I can, I can give a talk about this to, to different audiences and I always know what kind of department I'm in based on which part of the talk makes people angry, right? And if you were to say in a, in a molecular biology department, if you were to say that, oh, this I'm going to tell you this collection of cells keeps a three-dimensional map, and people say you're you're out of your mind. If you say to if you now now if you go to a neuroscience department, and you say 
I've got a collection of cells that keeps a three-dimensional map. They say, well, of course you do. We all do. They're, they're called neurons. And that doesn't mean they have to be neurons. So that's something else you can, you can fight with, with people in that department about as to whether they be neurons. But, but, but the idea, that same idea of a collection of cells holding on to a map of, of, of information is ridiculous in one audience and completely obvious in another audience. So if, if I had to guess, what I would say is, um, and, and we don't know, but if I had to guess, I would say that what you're looking at is the ability of all cells, not just not just neurons, to form representations of important things in their in their environment, and that they've learned now why ecologically why the deer do this. I have no, I haven't the faintest idea, but 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 I think what's happening is that uh, these cells have a default map of, of antlers they're going to make. And much like the planarian case that I told you about, that map is, is rewritable. And there are certain experiences that will make alterations to that map. And now why it allows you to do that, I, maybe there's some advantage to it that I don't know. But, but, but that's, what, that's what I would guess. I would guess it's the same mechanism that later on, when brains evolved, was taken over to become uh, maps of, for, for running around the three-dimensional world. Whereas before, they were maps of anatomy. They were supposed to be maps of your own body. And then the whole thing got sort of pointed outwards to be maps of the external environment. Moving on to Xenobots. So just to be a little bit more uh, specific, like what is a Xenobot? How did you build one? Why did you build one? How long do they live? How do they reproduce? I have so many questions. I'm forgetting. I'm forgetting the first question. Um, okay, so so let's see. So uh, to kind of set the stage, so so this is so, so this is a joint project with um, Joshua Bongard's lab at the University of Vermont and uh, Doug Blackiston, who's the staff scientist in my group, who is actually physically making these things. And then um, Sam Kriegman, who was a PhD student with Josh and now is a postdoc in my lab, who does all the computational work. They were originally created because we are interested in the question of biological plasticity. We are interested in uh, decision-making and how collections of cells make decisions about what they're going to build. And in particular, the questions of could cells with the exact same, what, what does the exact same hardware, so no genomic editing, what, does, uh, what, what do cells, uh, what, what else can they build? How do they make decisions about what they're going to build? And the origin of these bioelectrical, of, of these, um, uh, sorry, morphogenetic uh, goals. If you have, if you're working hard towards building a particular type of uh, structure, uh, what would it mean to now redirect that goal, much like we saw in planaria, where you can say one head or two? Could we, you know, what 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 are cells willing to make normally? So so we're interested in this in this plasticity, and the way the way you make them is you explant uh, skin cells from the from the embryo. Uh, you put them in a new environment. You do or do not, depending on the experiment, uh, sculpt them a little bit in accordance to um, the predictions of a. Uh, of, of an AI algorithm, which is was developed in uh, in the Bongard lab, where you try to you know the the long term picture here, of course, is 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 again moving towards that anatomical compiler. You want a machine learning system such that you could say, okay, you've done now millions of experiments with these bots. Based on that, what can you tell me if I want a bot that's flat with a hole in the middle to carry some kind of a cargo from here to there? what would I have to do? And it would say, well, what I've inferred is that you should stimulate the cells this way and that way, and then probably you'll get what you're looking for. So that's, this is the beginnings of that, of that pipeline. So um, <clears throat> uh, 
what uh, what else was there? How long do they live? Standard Xenobots live for about a week to ten days. Um, you can you can extend that. We we figured out a way to feed them. Which if you do that, I think our record is something like eighty five days or something like that. And you said that they're able to reproduce in some way. Yeah. So what they do is they do something really interesting, which to my knowledge, no other uh, no other creature is known to do, which is that they it's 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 very cool they they recapitulate the same collaboration that we had with them i mean think about think about the first think about the origin of the first xenobot so the first xenobot is not micromanaged it's guided self-assembly so we take these cells we dissociate them we let them reassociate maybe we sculpt them a little bit maybe we do a couple other things but the cells do most of the heavy lifting right? We don't know how to tell cells to be a xenobot that has behaviors A, B, and C. We're depending on the cells to be competent enough to know how to join together and to do various things. And then our job is to guide that process towards something that we like, some, some kind of outcome that we want, okay? So, so it's, a, it's really a collaborative process. I, I tell everybody in, in, in that system, there are at least three participants, maybe more. There's us, there's the AI that tells us what to do, and then there are the cells themselves that actually know how to do all these things. So now, so, so there's that collaborative process that gives rise to the first xenobot. Well, if you let these xenobots loose in a field, in, in a Petri dish, and you sprinkle into that Petri dish a bunch of loose skin cells, what the xenobots do will, will exactly replicate their origin, meaning they will go around and collect these cells into piles, meaning they, 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 they act like little, they look like little, um, little sheepdogs or little Roombas where they just sort of go in a, in a, in a circle and just like uh, corral these loose cells into, into piles. But then they count on the, pi- on the cells themselves, again, to be competent to once they're in a pile, they become the next generation of xenobots. And those xenobots, as soon as they're mature, will start to move and do exactly the same thing with the other loose cells. So there are several generations, right? I think four generations is this is what we've gotten up to. Uh, but it's really interesting. It's it's robotics in the sense that you're making these things um, achieve functions that they otherwise, you know, frog skin doesn't otherwise achieve. But it's not traditional robotics. In traditional robotics, you're working with dumb parts. So the parts are passive and anything you want to happen, you have to, you have to force it. You have to put the parts in exactly the right configuration for anything useful to happen. This is quite different. You're, 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 you're here much, much like evolution works with, you're working with very competent parts. So that, that has pros and cons. The pro is that there are lots of cool things that they can do that you don't know how to micromanage. I mean, it's skin. They have sensors. They can sense heat and light and all kinds of things. We don't know how to make sensors that do all that kind of stuff. But um. But on the other hand, there's a huge surprise value because you don't actually know what all what what they're going to end up doing. You know, you, we we don't have full predictive uh, capacity on this, so it's an interesting type of creation process. And they make copies of themselves using exactly the same process. They corral the other cells, taking advantage of their capabilities of becoming the next generation of xenobots, and on and on it goes. In terms of what you foresee as the future of xenobots, I know that you mentioned creating a circular or donut-shaped xenobot that could potentially hold something, but future practical applications of what these things could do, what, what would you say some of those things would be? Right. Um, let's, uh, let's, let's, let's divide this up uh, into a couple of different bins. I think, I think practical applications of biobots, and, and xenobots are certainly not the only biobots. There are other people have other ideas for how to make biobots. Um, but but practical applications of xenobots are 
things like in, in the environment, you might imagine them going out and collecting either toxins or rare, you know, rare molecules of some sort or doing sensing or exploration or rescue. In vitro, they might be micro sculpting different structures that will then be implanted into the body. They might be cleaning machinery for biofouling. They might be um, in, in, the, in the body at some point, eventually they might be chasing down um, cancer cells or bacteria or laying down pro-regenerative molecules or scraping the plaque off your arteries. There's a, there's a million things you could imagine useful synthetic living machines doing. But long-term, I actually don't think that's the biggest impact. I think the biggest impact is going to be as a discovery system for asking how do we get collections of cells to do what we want them to do. It's a sandbox model. We're going to learn using, using the system we're going to learn things for regenerative medicine because once we understand, once you understand how to make a, a, a bot be and do whatever you want the bot to be and do, the next step is, well, I can do the exact same thing to the cells in your body. And so when somebody's missing an arm or has a birth defect or has a tumor, what you now have is a way of communicating with those cells to push them towards specific large scale outcomes. And that's what, that's what we're, that's what you're looking for. So I think I think, uh, and, and then I actually think this even impacts longer term beyond that, but but synthetic useful machines is just one thing. It also is, is this ability to crack this morphogenetic code in a system that isn't, it isn't as constrained by by the frozen accidents of evolution as our as our typical model systems. You know, there's all kinds of accidental things that went on to being a zebrafish or a fruit fly or a mouse or whatever. This is a completely novel uh, novel system where we can learn the rules of of morphogenesis from 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 scratch, and that's that that will be huge. So, moving on to regenerative medicine, what is the evidence that human regeneration is even possible? Um, I think that uh, th there's a couple of there's a couple of different ways to think about it. the The theoretical way to think about it is anything that isn't prohibited by the laws of physics is possible. So there's there's uh, you know for, I, I think I think if somebody wanted to argue that regeneration was impossible in humans, it's on them to argue that. I think I think I think that's that's a, that's a very strong claim because we see. We see, um, uh, for, for example, um, salamanders, right? They regenerate their limbs, their eyes, their jaws, their tails. There is clearly nothing about being a really complex living being that prevents you from repeating later on what you already did during embryonic development. There's nothing deep about that. If somebody wanted to argue that that's impossible, that would be a really tough claim to make. Um, even even in mammals, you know, we see like again with the deer, the deer antlers regrow a centimeter and a half of new bone per day when they're making these um, these antlers. So it's it's a matter of uh, I, th I think it's a matter of I think getting there is a matter of two things. It's <clears throat> the the scientific part is to discover which stimuli convince groups of cells to build specific things. And that's as much about understanding embryogenesis as it is about inducing regeneration, but it's understanding where does the three-dimensional anatomical control come from. And then, and then there's the sort of bioengineering component, which is during that process, can you, can you provide an environment, an aqueous sort of amniotic-like environment for those cells that enables them to do these things that were a lot easier during development. You know, one one reason you might you might think of why mammals are aren't as regenerative is we 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 live in dry air. 
So, so there are many things that are much harder in dry air than they are in water, among them running the, the, the ion currents out of the wound epithelium, um, but, but also support, you know, gravitational support. And just think about <clears throat> your, you're an ancestor of mammals, your little, little mouse-like thing running around the forest, somebody bites your leg off. Um, if you're going to regenerate, first of all, your job number one is not to bleed out. So, so you got, you've got, uh, because you got, you, you, you have a, a goal right there of, uh, of, of, of that, that supports scarring, but also as soon as you start regenerating, you're going to grind that delicate blastema into the forest floor. You're trying to put weight on it. You're stepping on it in, in water that doesn't happen. And in deer antlers, that doesn't happen. You don't put weight on it. So I think, I think that's actually, these are the kinds of things, this is an accident of evolution. There's nothing deep and fundamental about, um, about this. It's just that it's expediency of evolution that it's easier to scar and hope you don't get an infection and bleed out than it is to try to figure out how you're going to not put weight on this thing for the, for the year that it's going to take to regenerate your leg. I mean, that, that kind of stuff is not, um, it's not fundamental. It's just, it's they're, they're bioengineering um, details to be solved. And remember too, that uh, again, I think, you know, people say, well, you know, the planaria are amazing. They can, they can regenerate a whole worm out of just a piece. Well, look at, look at humans. At least half of us can regenerate a whole body out of one cell, right? The, the 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 females among us make an egg, and that egg generates everything you you had. That, that's that's the most amazing um, example of regeneration, right there. I mean, I actually think development is an example of regeneration. You've done a number of experiments on regenerating of limbs. I'm specifically referring to the hind leg amputated frogs. Mm -hmm. um, can you talk a little bit about that experiment and whether or not you've had any success applying this same technology into mammals? Yeah, so that experiment, uh, there were there were two, there were actually three sets of, of experiments. So back in, mm, I don't know, about five years ago, we we showed this in uh, in young froglets that a bioelectric cocktail could trigger regeneration, and that was kind of super interesting because. The leg, the the final leg that you got was a very nice looking leg, but the in between stages didn't look like the early developmental forms of a frog leg at all. They were completely different. So that suggests that there's multiple ways to traverse amorphous space to get to the same outcome. So that's kind of that's kind of cool. That that by the way is uh, William James's definition of intelligence is the ability to get to the same goal by different means, and um, and that and that was that was pretty interesting. It was it was able to do that. The next, the next uh, thing, the next thing we did was in 2018, and this wasn't a um, particularly a bioelectrical intervention, but we found that a wearable bioreactor that was made by David Kaplan's group, they are our collaborators on all this stuff. <clears throat> that bioreactor containing uh, containing uh, a drug, it happened to be progesterone, triggered leg regen, triggered pretty good leg regeneration regeneration in adult frogs. It's never been done in adult frogs before, um, and. Uh, there's a new, there's a new uh, paper that's going to come out in about, um, in about three weeks that I, it's still under embargo, so I can't release anything, but it's, just, it's the same idea where that bioreactor, uh, in, in, in the original study, that bioreactor is on for just 24 hours. Then you get over a year of leg growth. So it's not about micromanaging the process. It's not guiding which cells go where and, and what they're going to be. It's an initial trigger. It's, 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 it's manipulating that early decision point. Am I scarring or am I going to try to make a leg? And if you can tip it towards that uh, organogenesis cascade, you don't have to touch it again. All, all the other stuff is already there. That subroutine is already there for making a leg. I mean, we know it is. It's already done it four times in development. So, <clears throat> so 
So, okay. So now uh, the next question, mammals. So, so we're doing that right now. Um, I can't really give uh, too many details yet, but this is, this is part of, uh, this is part of a company that David and I have spun out. It's called Morphoceuticals. Um, we, uh, we're, we're basically doing this now with, uh, with, uh, with, um, with mice. So that's, that's the goal. The next, the next goal is, is to, is to do this in mammals. Can you talk a little bit about the bioreactor? Like, what are you actually doing? How are you triggering, like, build it, build an organ here, build a, build a leg? Yeah, the bioreactor itself is, is at this point, I mean, uh, down the line, it'll be a much more, much more um, kind of uh, active dynamic thing. Right now, it's pretty, it's pretty passive. It does two things. And this is, this is, again, this is all done by uh, David Kaplan's group. It, it does two things. It provides a local uh, uh, aqueous environment for the cells. So the cells know right away, we don't need to scar. We don't need to uh, seal the wound. We are protected. It's, there's, there's plenty of liquid around. We're not going to dry out. With this, this, you know, there's no infection going on. Um, it, it, I think already that just that protective and, and it keeps the mouse from, from, from grinding them into the wood chips. So <clears throat> it already... Um, provides this kind of uh this kind of protective uh protective environment um the other thing that of course is in there is our payload so it's our job to come up with with uh with small molecule drugs that will trigger a particular state bioelectric but maybe some other things and you know immune and so on that uh trigger a state that says build a leg here and at minimum, you can imagine that maybe what maybe the only thing we need is to recapitulate the state that built the leg um, in the first place in embryonic development. I mean, how, do, how does it know where the original leg goes? So if we, we with the eye, we've already seen that, well, there's an electric pattern that says put an eye right here. And we know that, 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 that that's how cells interpret that pattern, because if we recapitulate that pattern elsewhere, that's where the eye goes. So at minimum, you might think that you could just watch what the native build a leg pattern is and recapitulate that um, somewhere else. I, I, I'm not even sure it's required to be, I'm not, I'm not even sure it's gonna be that complicated um, <clears throat> because we, we've, we've seen there are a variety of, of, of uh, triggers that, that in the frog anyway, trigger really nice um, leg repair. So we're hoping that'll work in mammals too. And, and, and by the way, people often ask, you know, how do you know any of this stuff is relevant in, in mammals? Two, two, two things, one is that this electrical system is incredibly ancient. This was around from the time of bacteria, so it's it's completely conserved. And you know this because because of human channelopathies. So when human patients have mutations in various ion channels, they look exactly like uh, the defects that we see in all of these animals: so craniofacial, um, limb, heart, uh, brain, um, digestive, eye, and all that. It's the same same exact stuff. So um, yeah, it's a very highly conserved system. There's also an experiment you worked on with a frog embryo with nicotine, and then you were able to reverse brain damage. Could you tell us a little bit about that experiment? Yeah, definitely. So, so the goal, the goal ultimately is, and this is, this is, you know, along the way to that um, anatomical compiler, the goal is to get to the point where you can look at an incorrect electrical pattern and ask, well, what do I need to do to correct it so that it will be the correct electrical pattern? So we looked at uh, the frog embryo and where it, where and there's a particular bioelectrical pattern that says this is where and how big the brain is going to be. And what we noticed is that if you treat the embryo with teratogens, we're talking about alcohol and nicotine or even mutations, in fact, even mutations in a really critical neurogenesis gene called NOTCH. Um, 
what happens is that bioelectrical pattern is is all is all uh, perturbed. It's you know basically shot to hell, and as a result, the cells don't know what to do. When you get brain, you get defects. You don't get a normal brain, so you don't get a normal brain structure. You don't get normal behavior. Uh, in fact, you get no behavior and so on. So what we did it was, and this is uh, this is um, uh, staff scientist in my lab uh, named uh, Vipav Pai and uh, collaborator Alexis Pytak, who's the kind of the computational um, expert. What we did was we built a computer model that described that electrical pattern and how it arises from the action of the ion channels. And then you can ask it very simple questions. You can say, okay, but if my pattern is wrong, which ion channel would I need to open and close to get back to the correct pattern? Now, you can't just do that by inspection. It's not obvious because it's very nonlinear and so on. You have to do the modeling. But when you do the modeling, the, the model picked a particular ion channel, happened to be called HCN2, and said, if you can open that channel, it'll act like a contrast enhancer and it'll sharpen the lines of where the electrical boundaries of things are supposed to be. And you'll get a nice brain and amazing, you know, to, to my amazement, when we actually tried it, sure enough, it repairs the defects and you get, you get embryos that have the normal, not only the normal brain structure and function, but they get their IQs back. Their learning is back to normal rates. I mean, it's incredible. And this not only from, from exposure to nicotine and alcohol, but actually to mutations of a really critical neurogenesis gene. So that tells you how important the software is in some cases, and certainly not all, but in some cases, you can make up for really bad deficiencies in the hardware with appropriate software. Let me just make sure I understand this. You're saying this algorithm, this is the bioelectric tissue simulation engine, is actually predicting this is the specific channel you need to open in order to get the original bioelectric signal that you want. And through that process, you're actually able to turn a, an embryo that was going to have irreversible brain damage into a, a functional embryo, a functional uh, adult. Yeah, that that that's all correct, except except for for one one piece. So so the so so Betsy with this 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 bioelectrical tissue simulation um, engine. Is 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 part is only part of the story because because what the what what Betsy does is it allows you to figure out what's going to happen electrically once you have a particular set of ion channels. So it kind of it goes forward. You we need and we needed another piece which goes backwards, which says okay, but if given that this is the pattern that I want, what should the channels be right? So so it's sort of it's like it, it like it, it it uses Betsy sort of backwards. To, to be Betsy knows how to roll forwards and make predictions. This thing goes backwards and says, okay, but if I want this to happen, what should my initial state be? So there's a second component. It's not just Betsy. There's a second component here that, that we're still, that we're still working on, but, it, but, but basically, yeah, that, that's, that's, that's correct. You can, you can use all of this to come up with a cocktail of ion channel drugs. And actually it's just one drug that will get you back to the correct electrical state. And that fixes all the downstream issues. That's crazy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's one of my favorite one of my favorite um, examples because oftentimes people get the idea that uh, people often make the assumption that oh well you know if you um, if well originally people said like back back when I was first starting this people said oh, voltage is a housekeeping parameter if you mess with it you're just going to get uninterpretable death and and you know cells are just going to die and then we show that no actually you can you can uh, induce very specific changes like new eyes and, and things like this. And then people say, yeah, well, um, it, it, it's easy to disrupt things and make monsters. So you know, what are you going to do with that? But, but this example tells you that, no, it's not about making monsters at all. It's about understanding the control structures so that you can make very targeted rational repairs. I mean, this, 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 we're to the point now 
you know, 20, 20 years ago, we were doing <coughs> screens to just ask what's possible, what's possible to do if you change your voltage, uh, what's the space of possible voltage maps look like. Now we're, at least in this case, we're to the point where we have an actual piece of software that tells you exactly what to do to fix a particular birth defect. Right, that's you know that's a, that's a long that's a long way to go, and it and it really tells you that uh, we've the the field but the field of bioelectricity has graduated from you know kind of these the the, the beginnings where we didn't really know how to make how to make uh, specific desirable changes now to the point where yeah it's really it, it's starting to look like we understand how how we're going to solve all these things. So now we just have a few rapid fire questions for you. The first is from. Carl Friston, he asks, how does the free energy principle stand in relation to sentience and intelligence beyond the brain, namely that inherent in any kind of biological self-organization? Boy, uh, yeah, Carl, Carl picked a, a simple one for a rapid fire question. My God, um, I think, uh, look, I've, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm hardly going to be able to add anything profound uh, on the topic of um, the free energy principle. Carl says everything that can be said uh, much better than I could. But um, the, only, the only thing I'll say, I'll say is this, um, all, with very few exceptions, you can take any paper in neuroscience and you can just do a find replace. And you replace any time where it says milliseconds, you just say minutes or hours. And anytime it says neuron, you say cell. And then you can read your paper and you'll have a nice piece of, of developmental biology. So whatever, so, so my claim is, and, and, and there may be places where this doesn't hold, but I think generally it holds. My claim is that anything that uh, Carl has said in his amazing work on the free energy principle and what the brain does will pour it over beautifully to the same uh, kinds of things in developmental biology, because I don't think the biology significantly distinguishes between neurons and non-neural cells. What will what will change is the time scale and the and the space in which you're solving problems. So instead of moving in 3D space, you'll be solving some sort of anatomical problem. But I think I think all of Carl's concepts will hold very nicely to um, in in outside the brain. <clears throat> Next question: What are one or two papers that you think people outside of your field? I don't know what exactly you would call your field. I feel like collective intelligence sort of spanning a lot of different fields, but what do you think are one or two important papers that other people should be more familiar with? Wow. Uh, any paper, my God, uh, there, oh, I, I don't know. I, I, on my website, I, I have a list of, uh, a list of, um, you know, uh, interesting things to look at on my website. I, I would, I would be hard pressed to pick just one. There's, there's a ton of stuff that, that the majority of people I think are, are um, are unfamiliar with just, just I'll I'll give I'll give one example just, just just for fun I think that it helps to look at um, Harold Burr's papers from like 1936 or so and that's an example of how far you can get with a clear mind and a good intuition this guy had nothing but a voltmeter in his hands okay he had nothing else to work with and he went around and measuring everything from from uh, um, oak trees to to salamanders to you know rabbits and whatever and based on that he wrote a book about what he thinks uh the perp the 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 the, the function and and the kind of uh the the future of bioelectricity that anticipated many of what we have only become discovered in the last few years this guy had a crystal ball like you wouldn't believe, and it's just it's just incredible. So so that that's that's one thing that that would be interesting, I think, for people to see. What important truth do very few of your colleagues agree with you on? 
Uh, yeah, there's plenty, there's tons. Um, <clears throat> I think that, um, I guess, I guess it also depends on what you mean by colleagues because, uh, but let's, let's just, let's just talk about the field as a whole, you know, just in general, you know, developmental biologists and everything. I think that, uh, I, I, I make the claim that a, um, a, a conception of biology from a goal directed perspective, meaning that we are not going to try to reduce everything to a to a dumb uh, mechanism uh, based on chemistry, meaning meaning one that has zero agency, but rather we're free to uh, use whatever level of description is the most um, uh, the most powerful in terms of prediction and control, and that means being open to the idea that you're going to find learning, memory, preferences, um, agency, some level of cognition everywhere from from molecular networks to cells to tissues not just not just brains and and this kind of um this kind of continuum of 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 agency and 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 cognition uh all the way down to molecular networks is something that a lot of people think is just completely crazy if you had to bet on what the first practical application of your research as applied to humans would be what would you bet on i think the f- probably the first the first is going to be either uh, either the cancer applications or uh, or or the organ regeneration. It's I actually I actually think we're farther along on the birth defect side of things, but there are massive um, challenges in terms of uh, safety testing and, and regulatory issues with with anything that that purports to um, repair birth defects. Which which is weird because we have a national institute of of devoted to birth defects. So in theory, the hope is that we have solutions to this. But anytime you speak to somebody about how are we actually going to test these interventions, they say, "Oh, it's impossible. You can't test anything in you know in, in pregnant women." So I don't know. But so because actually, I think we're furthest along on that. But other than that, it's going to be either the cancer stuff or the limb regeneration work. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the External Medicine Podcast. If people are interested in learning more about your work, uh, where on the internet should they go? Uh, there's a couple of places. Uh, my website, uh, drmichaellevin.org, one word that has everything. It has all our papers. It has lots of useful links, protocols, everything else. There's also um, allencenter.tufts.edu, which is our center. Uh, there is my Twitter feed, at Dr. Michael Levin. And there's also icdo.org, which is the um, Institute for Computer Designed Organisms, which is our, our new institute with Josh Bongard. Thank you very much, Mike. We appreciate it. Thanks so much. Yeah, it was a great discussion. Thank you. If you'd like to support us, here are some ways you can help. Subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a review, preferably a phenomenal review. Visit us at externalmedicinepodcast.com and tell your friends. 